Hey folks, you own firearms? I do. Did you know that there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Meet muzzle stick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzle stick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. That could save lives. Are you one of nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection? Well, Taking an extra precaution by using muzzle sticks, big bright barrel, and chamber flags will let everyone around you know if the firearm is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some people do. And a clearly marked gun's status communicates to others around that may not have firearm handling experience and it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags do offer firearms rapid clear identification, and that could save lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owner. Head over to muzzlestick, M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K dot com to place your order. One more time, that's muzzlestick, M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K dot com. After all, we only have one life to live. Hello, America, and welcome to the Friday edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, where we're going to go into the weekend with a heavy-duty conversation, a one-on-one with one of the greatest epidemiologists in the world, one of the most respected medical scientists in the world. Joining us today from the great university, Yale University, is Dr. Harvey Risch. He is a straight talker when it comes to this pandemic. He has been right many times when our public health officials have flip-flopped and proven to be wrong. And today we're gonna ask them, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? What does Omicron mean for the future of this pandemic in this country, in this world? And what do we need to learn from the flip-flopping mistakes that mandate mistakes that we have imposed across this country over the last two years? He's gonna talk straight. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't play politics. He's a scientist from the moment he starts to the moment he ends. You're going to enjoy this conversation very much. I'm very excited about this conversation. Can't wait. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, our exclusive entire show today is with Dr. Harvey Rich from Yale University, one of the world's leading epidemiologists. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34-plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. 
Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Very excited to have my next guest here. The first time he's been on this show, he is one of America's premier epidemiologists, really one of the world's premier epidemiologists. He is uh, a professor at uh, Yale University. He is Dr. Harvey Risch. You've seen his writings. You've seen him on television, and we're so grateful he's joining us today. Dr. Risch, great to have you on the show today. Pleasure to be with you. We have just lived through two years of a pandemic, and unlike anything in our conscious time as adults. As we enter into the third year, how do you grade the public health system's performance in the middle of this pandemic? Well, I think that it's been poor, I'd put. I wouldn't say it's failed, but I think it's been pretty poor. I think that many of the actions have been counterproductive. They haven't understood exactly what the uh, uh, appropriate methods that should have been used were. They used the wrong ways of measuring how the pandemic was going on. And in fact, it's very interesting that at the beginning of the pandemic in in 2020, I was part of a committee in the state of Connecticut that was formulated to help the governor with policies to reopen the state after the lockdown. And I remember commenting to one of the committee members that it's going to be obvious that the way we manage this and get out of it is to count the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths and ignore the numbers of cases. And this was before we were hardly having any cases at the Amazing. time. Yeah. You know, but it was obvious then to people who were thinking about how to manage this, what to do. And yet that has never taken hold. And now finally with Omicron, we're seeing that the, the cases are, are going sky high right. and, and not mattering much. That's the whole point, because there, right. it's a very, very mild illness. And, and, and so now, finally, people are waking up to say that the cases don't matter. We spent billions of dollars from NIH, NIAID, Dr. Fauci, re- re- university researchers. We were supposed to have a playbook. We started under George W. Bush. We had it under uh, Barack Obama. And as I read the playbook, and I'm not a doctor, so I'll, I'll give my layman, it seemed as though the goal was to protect the vulnerable, and then try to find the best way to get people safely to back to normal life. How did we spend all that money and not really have the right solution for this pandemic? Well, the original sin of the pandemic was the, the suppression of early outpatient treatment. Had we ha- had that at the beginning, then even with the vaccines, which still is a, is a potential and reasonable component of the whole public health approach, right. 
that we would not have seen such draconian outcomes, such massive mortality, uh, apparent massive mortality anyway, and uh, that we, it would have been over already. We would it would we would not have generated anywhere near the number of mutant strains that have been registered, and we would have it would have moved into and endemicity. It would have it would have been endemic, very low level illness, possibly with seasonal cycles that people would take for granted already. But what we've done by mostly other countries that have locked down so much. Um, and us too, and with the, the, the with the uh, somewhat ineffective vaccines used in large scale, it's created more mutants and spread the, the the pandemic to be much longer than it needed to have been, and it's resulted because of that in a much larger mortality than we needed to have. When you look out, I mean, he is the quarterback of this, uh, whether we like it or not, or seems to be a lot of people like him. I know you've had many interactions with him. Anthony Fauci, was he up for the job here as the chief infectious disease specialist of America? Well, Dr. Fauci has interests that do not align with the public health interests of the United States. He is not a public health physician. He's not, his PhD is not in public health. He is not trained in public health. And for those reasons, he has his own particular motivations and why he is looked at as the guru of public health is just beyond me. He's been canonized into that position because of his political abilities, but not because of expertise. And when you when you say he uh, his interests diverge from the public health interest, what what did he do? Where is his personal uh, or you know professional interest lie that blinded him or made him not as successful in, in managing this pandemic? Well, I think this history has already been written before we ever got to yeah. COVID-19. I wrote a little bit of it myself. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, I, you know, between the AIDS pandemic and right. his, his blocking of even saying things about Bactrim in the era of the PCP pneumonia that was appropriately early treated with Bactrim that led to the deaths of 17,000 people in New York City, <laughs> you know, while he was hawking AZT, which was a terrible medication that required a treatment against the treatment, yeah. uh, you know, in order to keep people alive so they could get the treatment, which didn't really work so well either, but made large amounts of, of financial profits for the companies. And that was his motivation then. And it seems that, you know, he decided that that method worked really well then. And he's done the same thing ever since. So his propensity is towards new drugs, new vaccines, and maybe a bias against, this is what other people have told me, a bias against over-the-counter or a readily available uh, therapeutics at work and other circumstances in diseases that, that generate similar responses in the body. Is that, is that an easy way to look at it? biased against therapeutics and towards these newfangled drugs and in, in, um, shots? Well, I think he's personally involved in large organizations like the Gates Foundation that have their goals as selling these vaccines worldwide and and I, that's his his orientation yeah the inability to have a debate i mean if you challenge anthony fauci at the beginning of this debate quite frankly if you challenge him today you get censored there are the twitter censors the facebook censors the youtube censors the political censors has that lack of debate has that censorship uh prolonged the pandemic in your mind well what it's done is it's made half the country unaware that there are alternative viewpoints and expertise. Half the country gets that message, 
because it doesn't listen to those venues. It goes out to independent media, independent social media, and so right. on. Whereas the other half, the the so-called elitist half, if if per se, that that part is still card carrying original media and and is just not hearing the the other viewpoints because of the censorship and it, it that media is, is self-censoring as well as you know for the people who report it as well as censoring viewpoints from outside the media and so the, the half the country doesn't get that but you know that's a that's a wall that's cracking there are, there are cracks forming oh no doubt you know and and it's beginning to register that people who uh, the, the major pandemic here is fear and people don't let themselves even allow themselves to think things that they don't have you know solutions or leadership for and so when they think that their world is coming to an end because of a virus that's everywhere and they have to hide in the basement you know that they're not going to listen to rational suggestions they're going to look for a leader who who gives them strength and fortitude to come out of their basements and that leader need not be accurate, rational, logical, scientific. And that's what's happened. I want to go to a statement that our president has made repeatedly in the middle of this current pandemic wave, the the Omicron wave, that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is that a fair and accurate statement of the state of where we find America right now? That is not true. Um, And it's not true not only in America. It's not true in in UK. It's not true in other countries. Part of the problem is that... The CDC has played fast and loose with a lot of studies and data. It's changed definitions of things that affected how we account for the numbers of different kinds of events. And all of this makes misrepresentations as to who and what is happening. We don't even know, for example, the mortality from COVID because the CDC long ago changed the definition that is used on coding death certificates from the uh, the examining physician's uh, best idea of what the principal cause of death was, now to include COVID as a cause of death, even when COVID was just known but wasn't the real cause of death because some other condition was the likely cause of death. You could have a car accident, right, suffer a terrible injury, but be COVID positive, and you might have got recorded as a COVID death, right? That's right. That's the problem. And this extends to hospitals that are reporting hospital, you know, admissions, from COVID as opposed to with COVID and and so on. So we have not been careful or objective in our data, and therefore it's very hard to understand this. But in UK, they are more careful, and they're reporting everything, and it's very clear that the, the rates of new infections in everybody from over age 20, I believe, uh, is higher in vaccinated people, for example, than unvaccinated people. Unreal. And... It's you know it's it's not huge but but right. but it's there that so you can't make these blanket statements that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's just not true, and it's not a hospitalization of the unvaccinated. And the 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 best thing about all this is whether that was true in the past or not. It's not true in Omicron. Right. Omicron is so massive and so mild that the the great well, overwhelming majority of people now getting COVID are getting Omicron in the United States. The CDC estimated it um, last Tuesday at 95.4%, I believe, 
of new cases Amazing, are Omicron. Yeah. The remaining 4.6% are, are Delta, Delta, which means that Delta is going away dramatically and that we're not, and, and if you look on worldometers, the deaths are going down. The cases are going up, and worldwide, deaths are going down. And, and the same is true in the United States, that Omicron is taking over and making all this irrelevant because people aren't dying from Omicron. Some are dying with Omicron, but not from Omicron. Such an important dynamic is it, it gets lost in all the fear mongering that goes in the media and other things. But there's a dynamic going on that actually could suggest that we're moving from pandemic to endemic state. Do you think we move? We take this down a notch because of how quickly Omicron has spread? Or is there danger that a more deadly version of this comes back and we're going through a, just an endless cycle like the old Groundhog Day movie? So it's possible we'll see another wave next fall but it's not going to be deadly, that Mueller's ratchet, which is the mechanism that viruses mutate to become more transmissible and less serious. And and it's it's really kind of the natural selection in the virus's interest to do this, because if people get sick, they stay home. They don't circulate. They don't spread. So the more, the sicker that people are, the more they stay home. So a virus that makes negligible sickness is one where people don't change their behaviors, they're out and about and mixing with people and they spread better. Right. So a virus that becomes more infectious and annoying like a cold where people don't change their behaviors is the best strategy for a virus to spread. Yeah. That's what viruses do. And that's how we got to Omicron. So are we headed towards a version of what they would call herd immunity? Is that a potential outcome here? Herd immunity, we've had herd immunity. That's we've true. had herd immunity for Delta, for everything. Right. Herd immunity is a continuum. It starts off very little, and it builds over time as more people become immune and as the immune, for the degree that the immunity lasts. And we've had herd immunity. We've had major herd immunity. Uh, my estimate is at least 60% of the American public has had COVID in one strain or another over the last year and a half. Almost all of them are uh, highly immune to the major strains going forward. That immunity is probably about 95%. For Omicron, which means that some people who got COVID a year and a half ago might have a bit higher risk of getting Omicron, not Delta per se, right. and the others, the immunity is stronger for that. But Omicron, you know, is, is a little bit uh, evasive of both natural immunity and especially vaccine immunity. Vaccine immunity, right. And so that's why all the breakthrough cases one is seeing for Omicron in vaccinated people, it's not of consequence to them by and large, but that's why vaccinated people are getting it, and a few unvaccinated people are getting it. Um, and people um, with who've had COVID in the past, but who've gotten vaccinated, are at greater risk of Omicron because the vaccines in people who've had COVID reduce some of the immunity that they had from having had COVID before. So, you know, but none of this is really consequential because we have Omicron, and when Omicron is 100%, you know, we're basically to the level of an annoyance, a minor amount of care for people who are at high risk, who are immunocompromised and so on, who, who still need some help in getting through it. But by and large, for almost every, everybody, everyday kind of people, it's not of consequence. In a few seconds, I want to play a role and I want to put you in charge, get rid of Anthony Fauci on the first day of the pandemic and install you. And I'm going to ask you what we do. But before we do that, you mentioned that there are some cracks 
in this long-running narrative that the official Washington official public health have. And I think I saw some of that in the last 24 hours. There's six former transition advisors to President um, Biden who are saying, we've got to learn to live with it. We've got to stop this vaccine or, or nothing uh, approach. We need therapeutics. We need to have a long-term strategy to survive with it. That is a major change. The president switched from there is a federal solution to there isn't. And then, of course, the New York Times before Christmas said, it's time to step back and reevaluate what we got to do and learn to live with COVID and not try to damp it down forever. Are those the right messages you think for the American public to hear now? Yes, those are those are cracks. Those are evidence of cracks yeah. that the the one size fits all vaccinate everybody in the country, you know, over and over and over again. Solution right. is not working, and uh, and and that's what I said that we do need outpatient treatment. We need treatment for for breakthrough infections for for people with with high risk of of, of bad outcomes even after vaccination. So all of the different strategies that should have been available are still needed. We, we need outpatient treatments. The, outpa- the high-priced outpatient treatments like Molnupiravir recently approved, which is a dangerous drug, right. um, and Paxlovid, which is a difficult drug because of all of its interactions with other common medications. Those should never have been needed in the context of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which were provably safe and provably effective when given early in outpatient usage. We knew this two years ago, or a year and a half ago, uh, if not ten years ago, and uh, and these medications had to be suppressed in order to make a, a, a viable playing field for vaccines and expensive patent medications, and that was the plan. And this started well before President Trump ever said anything. Right. It, w- it was in play in, two, in fall of 2019, and and probably even earlier. Wow. How do we get to this point that the best interest of the public, therapeutics, things, rather than the best interest of a captured audience? If Fauci is a capture of the Gates philosophy or the big pharma philosophy, how did we get to a point where so much of the medical profession, obviously yourself excluded, could rally around this when it's obvious that the public health's interest wasn't best served by that approach? How do we, is, it, is it a problem in medical schools and research schools? Did we somewhere lose sight of the public health interest as the number one thing for, for a pandemic? So the answer to that is yes, we are the proverbial, proverbial frogs that have been cooked in the gradually heated water. Mm. That, I mean, I'm talking about as doctors and scientists. Right. And, you know, when I was in medical school in, in the early mid-1970s, we were already talking about refusing the free gifts of stethoscopes and book, free books and so on right. from drug companies, because we already understood the degree of corruption right. that doctors faced by all the freebies and so on. This was at a time of, of free trips to, to medical meetings and, uh, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And this has only intensified over time to the point of major corruption of medical journals that the editors and and expenses of many medical journals are paid for by pharma ads. And so the journals are constrained as to what they're willing to publish. Uh, Academic medical centers are constrained by large research grants from pharma companies, as well as major consulting and lecturing relationships of senior and mid-level academics around the world that that and this is such a corrupting influence 
that it's difficult to get objective science into the medical literature if that objective science differs from the interests of the pharma yeah. companies that are competing on, on, on those terms. And I'm not, not nearly the first person to raise this issue. This was raised by Marsha Angel, who was yes. the editor-in-chief of what, the New England Journal, yeah. and Richard Horton at, you know, at, at Lancet, and, and others going back. I think Jason Fung at the University of Toronto made a video in 2017 of all of this. It's really amazing and, and prescient for you know, what's happening now. But this has been affecting publication and reviewers' uh, uh, objectivity in the medical literature for some years. And so this set the stage for how the corruption and capture of all, all of our institutions happened. The FDA has been captured for decades. There have been uh, whistleblowers from the FDA who have oh, been complained yes. about political meddling from both parties yep. You know, in FDA decisions. We've seen that over and over again. The FDA has completely captured it from the pharma companies who they call their users, mm-hmm. um, their clients who pay for two-thirds of their $6.6 billion you know, annual budget. Uh, the CDC has been object-oriented when the top of the CDC says, we need a study to show X, Y, Z, and all the employees run around like chickens with their heads cut off for an hour, <laughs> scooping up data and trying to come up with a paper that gives a message, and they publish it in their non-peer-reviewed morbidity mortality weekly report. And, and this nonsense comes out that that is not science, it's, it looks like science, but it's not science. Yeah. And this is the problem with capture of these agencies that we have, we need to rely on for their technical expertise, but we can't because of their capture. Yeah, such an important dynamic that America has to learn. We have to fix this or we're going to continue to have public health crises that are prolonged. You don't have any doubt that if we had taken a different approach early on, if we'd taken the approach that folks like you and Jay Bhattacharya and so many other great minds had, that we would have saved tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives, do you think? Hundreds. Wow. No, no question. Well, if you believe that the, the numbers of death statistics right. are even accurate, accurate. Then on that basis, then yes. And it, and it appears to be so because of... The, uh, the insurance company that just put out yeah. Was it that information amazing? about that. So, you know, those are mostly cardiovascular deaths that, that they're seeing, it appears. Yeah. And the cardiovascular deaths are seem to be increased uh, in risk by clotting mechanisms, aberrant clotting mechanisms that are both immediate and longer-term effects of the, these vaccines. And it's not necessarily the... Um, the nature of, of the genetic nature of the vaccines, but the fact that they make so much spike protein, and the spike protein itself is has these toxic effects in the body, and that's why you see all these things happening. Um, why the, the the vaccine manufacturers focused on the spike vaccine and not on all the other proteins on the surface of the virus or the viral envelope it, itself? which are antigens that, that could be used. Or easily to targeted, or, or safely targeted, right? Right, correct. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand. I'm not a virologist, so I don't understand that, but it would have seemed more obvious of a thing to do. Yeah, such an important point. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We're going to come right back with more from Dr. Harvey Rich. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out 
by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick house nutrition and of course field of greens all you got to do to take advantage of this offer visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code just news that's promo code just news at fieldofgreens.com don't wait go to fieldofgreens.com today use the promo code just news for 15 percent off all right folks welcome back we've got more with our interview here with dr harvey rich all right, I want to have fun for a second. We're wound back to March 2020 when we were talking about flattening the curb. And President Trump decides, or whoever's in charge, they're going to fire Dr. Fauci. They're going to put you in charge. In March of 2020, what do you do as your strategy? With all the hindsight that you, you have the blessing of having today. Well, the first thing is we release the strategic national stockpile of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. And we put that into the hands of everybody. You know, and there are a lot of countries around the world that hydroxychloroquine is over the counter. Um, and we don't necessarily have to go that far. I did. I advocated for making it prescription right. at that point, not over the counter, but generally available. There's so much of it. It's so easy to make that that happens. You know, um, that is such a good agent that it's very clear that um, you don't have to develop expensive competing drugs by and large, there's uh, the fact that ivermectin works and, and helps is, is a benefit, and, and that ultimately became part of, of the outpatient treatment plan. Yep. Uh, and we now know from all of the, the clinical research 
about clotting and other issues that we want to support uh, anti-clotting, you know, like with aspirin or other medications, that an antibiotic like azithromycin or doxycycline is useful. All of this has to be done early on. We already knew that for viral infections, you have to treat them early, in the first two or three days if possible. Right. Uh, and the earlier you get to them, the better that viruses are evasive beasts and one single bullet isn't enough to stop them. It requires a combination yeah. of medications. But those combinations exist, and they're, and they're relatively easy. That zinc was a part of the, the method of suppressing the viral replication. That's part of, of the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin program. There's another medication called bromhexine mm-hmm. that used to be over-the-counter in the United States that people would take when they got a cold or the flu to loosen the phlegm in their chest. Right. And this medication, which is over-the-counter in much of the rest of the world um, and is inexpensive, blocks the other mechanism that the virus can enter cells with. The virus enters cells through what's called the ACE2 receptor that it it binds on and and splits through it into the cell and and goes in. But there's another receptor called TMPRSS2 that it can use as a secondary method of getting inside cells, and the bromhexine blocks that. And it, it's cheap and very safe and useful, and there's been randomized trials that show its benefit. It's just not available here so easily, although it, it can be found on, of all places, eBay, you know, and, and things like that. So there, we have a lot of, of this pharmacologic armamentarium that's cheap, safe, inexpensive, proven for, uh, for its safety beyond all doubt, and, uh, you know, should have been put into availability early on. That would have been the, the principal form of management, and, and then the issues of quarantine only are relevant for people who are symptomatic. Yes, is it possible that pre-symptomatic people, the day before they get symptomatic, might be um, contagious, transmissible, right. contagious? Sure, but the, the, the majority of people, you don't have to make everything perfect. That Remember, when you have a, a virus that has a reproduction factor of three, which is how this started out, and you have to get that to below one in order to shut it all off, that different parts of things that you do lower it in different amounts. And so if you have people who are quarantining when they become symptomatic, you'll lower it, you cut it in half. So you lower it to one and a half from yep. three. And, and then um, once... The, the you start to build up herd immunity when you know a substantial fraction of the population has had it, then the transmissibility goes down because it bumps into people who've already had it rather than people who are susceptible to it. You get it down below one, and then it starts to go away. So you know the there are much less draconian measures of dealing with it that solve the problem without feeling panic and having to shut it off immediately. You know, like the bug crawling across the floor that you instinctively have to step your foot on. Right. You know, that's what we were doing from fear with, with this infection, but it, this, this is not the solution, the rational scientific solution to dealing with it. There are people that say, in fact, they censor me, if I put this on my website and dare put it on Twitter or Facebook, that hydroxychloroquine is not a viable it's it's failed all of its peer-reviewed trials and the same thing with ivermectin are they telling the truth when they say that no there what happened is because of the massive need to distort the playing field uh, the fair playing field for the patent medications and uh, and vaccines fake studies were launched 
both randomized and not, to uh, suppress, to, to dis discredit these drugs. It started with hydroxychloroquine. These fake studies, that, so it's known that randomized trials, when they're done well, provide very good scientific evidence. That's right. What it, make, what it means to, done, to be done well is they have to be large enough to have large numbers of events in both the treatment and placebo arms. That means the outcomes. Not, so if you do a study of 40,000 people, 20,000 in each treatment arm, but you only have 12 events in one arm and 28 in the other, it's not large. Right. Because those 12 and 28 have to be large in order for randomization to be effective. For example, if you think you, you, you flip a coin 20 times and you get 8 and 12 outcomes and you think, well, could that 8 and 12 have happened by chance because a coin is supposed to be 50-50? The answer is that happens by chance all the time. 8 and 12 or 7 and 13 or whatever, that happens by chance. And when you do a randomized trial and you only have tens of, of events in each outcome, in each arm, it, those could easily happen by chance. And so the, the problem is that all of the other variables that you want to control for are also happening in small numbers because they, what matters is their distributions in the people that happen, have the outcomes, the, the, the 12 and 28 or whatever. You need to control for age and obesity and heart disease and all and and the whole point of randomized trials is you need to control for all the variables that you didn't measure and you think might be biasing that and so in order to do that you have to have large numbers so these trials had small numbers they had small they had uh and so that was the first problem with them then they had um the people who were studied healthcare workers were at such low risk because they were too young so there were there were zero, one, two outcome events of, of substance uh, of hospitalization or mortality in these studies. So those studies are entirely useless because they're too small and and too healthy. Then there's the hospital studies. Studies were being done in hospital patients with doses that were too high or too low, and are irrelevant because we never said we were talking about treating hospital patients. We we're treating outpatients. The whole point of this program was to use early intervention, right? an early intervention in high-risk outpatients. In fact, right. when I wrote the, the seminal paper on, on this in May of 2020, I said in the title, Early Treatment of High-Risk Outpatients. And that was the original plan because those are the people who needed it. If the low-risk people didn't need it because they survived the infection perfectly well. High-risk people needed it and it had to be used early. And that means for outpatients. Well, these hospital studies were, were being done. The hospital studies, for whatever reason, whether they were true or not, some of them weren't showing benefit. And then you have people like Dr. Fauci and the major media saying, see, here's the proof that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. End of sentence. Yep. Doesn't work for what? Well, it didn't work in the hospital study, but that means nothing about outpatients. That wasn't treatment. where it was supposed to be applied anyways. Right. And then what you had, the biggest fraud in this whole thing with the FDA's big fraud, which is still there, which is their website, that warns against hydroxychloroquine usage in outpatients. It's a, a big black letter warning saying hydroxychloroquine should not be used in outpatients for risk of adverse cardiac uh, events. It says that in big black letters right. in outpatients, in black letters. And then underneath that, in small text, it says we base this on adverse events that we have observed in hospitalized patients. 
Now, whether or not the data in hospitalized patients came from the hydroxychloroquine use or from the disease itself that was being treated, that's a secondary issue. Right. The main issue is that the FDA has said this because it has no systematic data about hydroxychloroquine use in outpatients because it blocked that usage in March of 2020. And so there has been no systematic gathering of information. If the FDA had information on adverse events in outpatients, it would have cited that information. The fact that it didn't cite that information means that it didn't have the information to be able to cite it. And every clinician who deals with COVID and half the public already knows that when you get COVID as an outpatient, it starts like a cold, you know, it, it can be, or a flu. It's a, it's a, it's a very intense one, but right. with headaches, sore throat, muscle aches, fever, and so on, that's like a heavy flu. And then after about day seven or eight, in the people who progress, it progresses to cough and pneumonia. And what people get hospitalized for is that severe pneumonia. It's a totally different disease than the outpatient. The virus is, is largely gone by the time of the pneumonia. It's the immune system overreacting, depositing debris in the lungs that has to be treated at that point, not the virus replicating, making the, having the body immune system make cytokines, which causes fever and things right. like that. Totally different disease, totally different treatment. And yet the FDA is parading around these data saying that hydroxychloroquine use in, in hospital patients bears on that it shouldn't be used in outpatients. This is a fraud that was, that's been there the entire time. It's biased not just medical providers and pharmacists in the United States. It's biased the entire world who's freaked out over hydroxychloroquine use, claimed that it was hazardous and so on. It's absurd. This drug has been used in tens of billions of doses and hundreds of millions of people for more than 50 years with, with better safety than things that we take for granted like Tylenol and aspirin and other over-the-counter medications. And this is the major fraud about, that was perpetrated on the American people and why we got, we, we've had such a, a bad response to the pandemic because we haven't had access to this drug. And the same thing it was repeated for ivermectin, calling smearing ivermectin as horse paste. Come on, yeah. y'all! You know the demeaning response, you know, of the FDA really to, to ivermectin when it's a perfectly good drug that's in wide use again in tens of billions of doses worldwide for its initial usage for parasites that works as as well against COVID. Last question: How do we get accountability for all of the public health officials, for all of the captured bureaucrats? for all of the news media that actually forced us into a response to the pandemic that has prolonged it, made it worse, caused tens or hundreds of thousands of more unnecessary deaths. Is there a moment where this boomerangs back in, in the Fauci's of the world and those who took us down a very unnecessary, elongated pandemic path can have some accountability? How do we get to that moment? Well, this is a difficult question because not only have the uh, drug and you know uh, regulatory and and journal institutions been captured but so has our our law enforcement agencies been politically captured sure. and and so getting some and even the courts to a certain degree and so getting some responsive and responsible action on all of this is going to take uh, probably a generation, mm. and it will take the the constant 
search for a just response to the malfeasance of, of all of this. And, you know, I think that there are people who are so outraged about all this, as I am, that I've lost friends and colleagues unnecessarily who didn't have medications, who were refused medications, who were told by their doctors, I'd rather see you die than give you hydroxychloroquine. Wow. You know, that there's <laughs> got to be some justice, that, that doctors, my son's a medical student, you know, he, he's growing up in, in this climate, and, right. and he knows that it's unethical and immoral, and he's still having to kind of tread water in the system, and we've got to make this, return this to ethical practice. There are, are hundreds of doctors who understand this, and are stymied in trying to deal with it because of all the suppression coming from the medical establishment, which is like the AMA, which is totally conflicted in this, is, you know, is corrupted by all of this. And it's going to be a very difficult question until enough of us stand up and say, we're not taking it anymore, right. you know, and people, the doctors themselves have to put aside their personal risks for their personal beliefs their personal values. It's happening. It's just slow, but it is happening. Yeah, it is such an important debate to be having, and it's been censored and suffocated and intimidated off the public shelf for too long. And it seems like maybe in these next six months, as we see this thing change and the original ideas come back in vogue, the ones that should have been, that maybe we'll get a little traction. But you're right, it probably is a long haul. Dr. Rich, you, you've written 350, more than 350 peer-reviewed studies that have been quoted more than 40,000 times. You're one of the most prolific, trusted a trusted epidemiologist in the world. How do people stay in touch in this era of censorship? How can people stay in touch with you and contact you and follow the great work that you do? Well, thanks. So I have a Telegram channel. There's two fake ones, but I have a real one. It's at Harvey Rich, MD, PhD. And if that's too hard to remember, people can search for me at the Yale School of Public Health. If they just search for Rich, that's R-I-S-C-H, and Yale, I'll come up. They can find me from my email address there. And I think my Telegram channel is on my webpage there also. So it's easy to find me. Fantastic. Well, I know a lot of people should take advantage of that. You are such an important public service in the a public servant in the health space. Your work has been epic for a long time. And it's shameful that the smartest voices that we had in epidemiology got sidelined so that some people can make a whole lot of money. But you're... Um, I believe history will show, sir, that you were right. And I think it's already beginning to show that right now. So. Oh, thanks very much. I hope so. I really do. Yeah, you're an absolute treasure for the United States. And we're so thankful today that you joined us. So thank you thank so you. much. Pleasure to be with you. Sure then. All right, folks. We're going to go take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. What a show today. So grateful that Dr. Harvey Rich could spend all that time with us, really walking us through a lot of the questions that I think we all have. Listen, we want to get this right. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who the infectious disease chief of the United States is. We want to get this right. But I was really struck by Dr. Rich's assessment of Dr. Fauci's approach to the pandemic. It is a stark thing to say that Dr. Fauci, as Dr. Rich just said, was not putting public health as his number one interest. He had an agenda, the agenda of the vaccine groups that are in the Gates world, that are in the big pharma, and that he didn't pursue a public health strategy. He pursued a vaccination and new drug strategy. That is a powerful statement. But, and you know, if it came from a politician, you'd say, well, it's political. But this is coming from a man who is trained in the science of epidemiology. This is coming from a man who has more than 350 peer-reviewed articles, which is in the world of science, that is a boatload of impressive research. This is a man who's been quoted more than 42,000 times about his research, uh, citations in other esteemed journals. This is not a lightweight. This is one of the country's most prominent and respected and successful epidemiologist. He's weighed in on everything from cancer to corona. And I think you need to step back and really absorb what he said today. I am. I'm going to be thinking about it all week, and I hope you are too. So, folks, go into this weekend with a smile on your face. Yeah, we've got some snow. we got some cold. we got some Omicron. It is January, and it is the beginning of the third year of the pandemic. But I took heart in a lot of what Dr. Rich said to us today, particularly as it relates to the possibility that Omicron will be a great immunizer and that we might get a big break in the COVID virus outbreak this spring and summer, maybe get back to some normalcy. And if it does come back, because we're going to be living with COVID for the long term, it looks like we're on a path to less severe cases, although it will be sticking around much like the flu sticks around. Important insights from one of the best of the best in the epidemiology world. Thank you, Dr. Rich, for spending the time with us. Thank you, folks, for listening, enjoying us, and engaging us every day, and reading our great news at Just the News. We'll have you covered all weekend long at justthenews.com. Until then, may God bless you, and may God bless this extraordinary country of the United States, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with 
with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now. 